Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Women podcast. My name is Camilla Marcus, and I'm so delighted to be a guest host for this series this month, Women's History Month. So today I am speaking with the inimitable June Rodell, an old friend and master psalm, as well as partner owner of Goodnight Hospitality in Houston. She is a woman of truly endless talents and someone that I admire and respect so immensely and someone I miss during the pandemic especially. Oh. So this is really just such an extra, extra treat and we're so lucky to have you on. Thank you for joining us, June. Oh. Thank you. It's so wonderful to hear your voice. <laughs> Ditto. I've missed you. It always feels so close yet so far away. <laughs> no. Well, I think just to start laying the foundation for those listening in who maybe don't know you, tell us a little bit about your love story. How did you first become interested in wine? You have such an amazing background and vast experience, Filipino roots and your upbringing in Texas. You just have such a broad global context and such a broad-based background. I think explaining sort of how that channeled into wine and larger level hospitality operations. Tell us your path. Sure. I mean, Sometimes I think it's a really common path and sometimes I think it's a really interesting path at the same time. There's so many people that have gone the liberal arts study program in college and then have no plan afterwards. We just love the liberal arts and we have no idea what the hell we're going to do with our lives. And so during that time, I moved to Austin from Dallas. I was originally born in the Philippines. And then my mom, very common in the Filipino culture is for women to get recruited into nursing programs into the United States. And so my mom got recruited into a nursing program at the Baylor Medical Center in Dallas. That's where I grew up. I feel like such a Texan. I'm so <laughs> deeply rooted in the South, but also very Filipino at the same time. So I think that tale of two worlds really helps me with being interested in different cultures and histories and that global aspect of hospitality and wine. But I, I mean, I didn't know any of that until now. This is all in retrospect. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it's always 2020, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, no wonder. Um, but I was enrolled at University of Texas and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I had been working in restaurants to pay for rent and go to college at the same time. I just fell in love with hospitality. And oddly enough, nobody thought that I would. I think it's because in day-to-day -day life, I'm an extrovert, but in real life, I'm an introvert. So it kind of surprised a lot of my family and close friends that I really just deeply fell in love with service. And it was such a toil. Like I, I went to graduate school. I applied to law school. I got accepted to law school before I fully decided I've just been part of this industry that I've really enjoyed throughout my higher education path. And I'm just going to go for it. And it was around, I don't know, 2007, late aughts when I really just decided this is it. And nobody really gives the opportunity to really delve deep into the hospitality industry and the wine industry in my market. Anyway, I know that there's larger markets where that was happening. So I never looked back. I just decided let's do it. So it's so interesting because I think you share a lot of people's paths in this industry, which is the side hustle that becomes the full-time career that I think up until recently, society tells us, oh, that's not a real career. So you're sort of trying all these different avenues before realizing, hey, it is really what I'm passionate about and it is a real career. And I think that's changed so much post our generation. So it's interesting that you describe it that way because I think that is true for so many. I don't know whether better or worse. 
what was your path into wine specifically? Because it really is almost a club unto itself. And it's always fascinating to hear how that draws someone in a whole new element and sort of distinct path within this realm in addition to service. So what was calling your name and what led you down that road? I think it was I'm super motivated to do something that I'm good at. And I, I mean, I hate, I hate the way that sounds, but frankly, it's just me. Like I really, really like being able to just delve deep into something. It's a little bit about the academia in me. And it's just a little bit about like the, just the verve and motivation. And we grew up with wine in our household, but not a lot. My parents are Catholic, so they do drink. And (laughs) yeah, they drink a lot now, but it wasn't every, every night. And there's not a lot of wine in Filipino culture at all. Most people drink beer or uh, Hennessy. Cognac is a big one there, some scotch. So we didn't really have a lot of wine all the time, but it was never taboo to drink it. I started in fine dining, maybe when I was 20, very, very young. So part of fine dining is really starting off as a busser, then expediter, runner, server. And then I eventually made my way as a captain in this fine dining restaurant. And that meant having to talk and discuss the wine pairings and the tasting menu with a beverage director. And I just fell in love with it. I think that my favorite part, honestly, was the realization that there was this reaction between food and wine and that dependent on what food and what wine you were drinking at what time or together, it just magically transformed into something better. And like, frankly, part of the fun of it was that sometimes it magically transformed into something hideous on your palate. (laughs) That was just super interesting to me. And that's when I just was like, this is insane. This is awesome. So I loved that visceral aspect of it. But then when you start learning about wine, you realize it's all the stuff that I loved about reading books, learning about cultures. I like geography, but I don't want to be a geographist. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's just so much involved in the wine world that it allowed you to really find it as a specialty. And then, I mean, I, I know that this is kind of true of all worlds that once you find this weird little niche world within those niches are even more niches. And that's kind of just what's happening. So there are these microcosms within the wine world that you find out about, but I mean, at the heart of it, I just really loved hospitality and the restaurant industry so much. And I can't cook. I'm horrible at it. (laughs) I love eating. It took a long time to really understand business and any day now I'll get it working on it. So wine and that front of house service was that specialty. And when you become a wine person in a restaurant, you become the person in the front of house that actually can do any job. So there's a way that you can make yourself indispensable to that restaurant. You can bus, you can be a host, you can serve, you can run, you can expedite. You have more of a nuanced relationship with the back of house because you understand flavors and how their flavors and what they're doing is really going to translate to the guest and how you can help them translate those flavors by adding to it with the wine program. So I think that just kind of solidified the fact that I found my special place and it gave me a little bit more solidarity or it galvanized my position and the leap that I took to stay in the restaurant industry. And I just feel so bad saying like, maybe there was a little shame in it, but 
it was just you're right camilla like there's a lot of people that are like i'm gonna be a server until i figure out what i want to do and so i was just constantly looking at things and proving that what i was doing was exactly what i should be doing and so i found myself and worked myself into the wine industry that way yeah i mean i think it's so true look i think for any career making yourself indispensable is a way to get confidence feel secure and find your place. I think that's so transferable no matter what you're doing. You know, you mentioned the folds, the different folds within this little microcosm and it's a world I'll be first to say, I'm very sort of outside in. In fact, when I opened Westbourne, I had wine distributors refuse to sell to me because what? they said, oh yeah, in New York City, I had multiple tell me, you're not a Psalm, what's your qualifications? And I'm like, Shame. I'm pretty sure my list is pretty good. and. I also oh know God. all these winemakers personally, so I'm a little confused here. It's, you know it is, it's a little bit of a gang mentality and I think it's very much an insider culture. And you've explored so many of those folds. You've made your own wine, you know, you have June's Brut Rosé right now. Talk to me about the folds, talk to me about your wine labels and how that came about and what that experience is creating it. I always say you're sort of a secret sniper. I think that you sit in so many different seats in that world that so many might not even know that you occupy. Yeah, I I mean, you say it, you say it so well. I think for me, it has to do with a natural curiosity. I feel like I always have to prove something, mostly to myself, quite frankly. Really continuing to work to be an expert in my field. A lot of it is ensuring the foundational, I guess, support of the company and the employees within it. But also, before I went into restaurants and wine. So I went into restaurants and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And then shortly thereafter, I was like, all right, I really actually feel like I found my place. I want to be a wine director. I want to do multiple programs. This is how I want to do this. Well, that didn't exist in Austin, Texas, really. There's maybe one or two positions, oftentimes in hotels and non-independent restaurants. And I have a love for independent restaurants. <laughs> yeah, they're my favorite. They're the best. They're just the most heartfelt, in my opinion. Hands down. Yeah, no offense to Carabas, but that's it's awesome <laughs> or Houston's but I didn't know again there's like the feelings of self-doubt cause me motivation to really delve deep so instead of just saying oh hey I want to learn how to buy wine I actually I was a server at the sushi restaurant called Uchi which is quite popular I think they just opened their Miami restaurant frankly they're killing it but I was a server there and I was like, I'm going to be a beverage director here. And the chef owner was like, okay, I don't know what that is. And I was like, be right back. I'll show you. <laughs> so I interned for a broker in Texas that was brokering for Broadbent Selections, which is an import company. There's so many layers in the wine industry that people are like broker, importer, distributor. What the hell does that all mean? Well, I didn't know either, so I just wanted to get my foot in the door because I realized that if I was going to figure out how to be a good buyer, a good beverage director, sommelier, whatever you want to call it, I needed to figure out how wine comes from producer into my hands. So before I ever took a job as a buyer in a restaurant, I interned for a summer for a broker, and that's how I met the Broadbent import team, and that was 10 years previous to when I finally made my wine label with one of their producers. So it really is the long game. It's just like such a long game. Yes. Hell yes. Cause you don't want to do something. You don't want to do something without really 
making sure you're doing it with the right people. And sometimes, sometimes we choose the wrong people, but when it's that important, I think I, I took the right move and waiting a decade to do it was probably the right move. But yeah, so it came from curiosity and really wanting to do a good job. And there's still a lot of people who don't understand how the restaurant industry works. We're still trying to vie in this pandemic for footing for relief, federal relief. And it has to do with people understanding how vital the industry is. So I think I just kept coming from this like fight or like rascally mentality of like, I'll show you this is an important thing. So that's how June's Rosé started. Not a lot of people know that, but yeah, I was at their national wine meeting for Broadband Selections when I was like, 26 years old, 27 years old. And I mean, I went and got them lunch. I told them where to go find a karaoke bar after their dinner. I poured wines, I decanted wines. I didn't really learn a lot about the wine import game, but I learned a lot about relationships and how important they are. So in those arts for sure. <laughs> no, it's everything. And, and I think you mentioned you know, you alluded to this, but I think it's worth diving deeper in as I've been very, you know, involved in restaurant advocacy and helping save independent restaurants through this unbelievable crisis that we're facing. But I don't think that there's a lot of conversation around the wine community specifically. How has the pandemic impacted that area of the industry? How are you seeing changes in guest behavior and how that side of the business is faring given obviously these just unprecedented circumstances. So a little bit of what happened in 2008, I think, which is an increase in spirit sales and a decline in high-end wine purchases for sure. And we see that in our restaurants, right? We're surviving and we're so happy to survive, but we see an increase in spirit sales. It's very common in a recession. And so to expect it and to understand it, we immediately backed off of purchasing high-end wine sales and then increased purchasing wine sales. We have a retail shop as well that we people can purchase at under 30. And it's not that they're buying less, they're just buying more quantity. And I think understanding those patterns, so I quickly kind of reviewed industry patterns from the 08 crisis. And then on the other side of things, retailers are having the best year ever. If you have wines that you can see in shelves at Costco, HEB, things like that, you can definitely maximize on what's happening in the pandemic because more people are drinking at home, you know? So there's less of that celebratory special bottle, which makes me sad, but at the same time, that's just what's necessary. And it seems that like it's necessary to drink through this. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that. <laughs> But yeah, so, so seeing what those patterns are, the wine industry has taken a huge toll too because of wine tariffs or just tariffs in general. Can and you so get a little primer, just like a Cliff's Notes version? Because again, I think it's something that's been sort of that drum has been beating, but I'm actually amazed at, again, how much the public doesn't really understand this issue. And frankly, I think a lot of restaurateurs, again, unless you're the wine buyer or you're the SOM or you're the Bev director, a lot don't really understand what's happening sort of under the covers and also backed by tech, which I think is a huge issue. Sure. Yeah. it's And it's, then we'll I dive mean, into it, but just, uh, the, yeah, the simple aspect of it is that there is a horrible deal that has to do with planes. 
<laughs> and somehow transferred no, you into, don't say <laughs> again planes yeah 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 <laughs> and it translated into an increase in luxury goods sales that are from mostly europe i mean they just added germany it's in cheeses the biggest hit is in wine but essentially i think that a lot of people really didn't notice because people just buy a specific amount per bottle. So maybe their labels changed a little bit, but they're going to go and buy either their $20 bottle, their $30 bottle, et cetera, et cetera. But what happened is there's a 25% tax basically for, well, just, it's not every single European country, but for most European wine labels. And it's actually under review right now, I believe, right? Yes, and, and hopefully there'll be changes in this current administration. That's the big hope. But I mean, in, oh gosh, sometime last year and the longest, shortest year on the planet, I mean, there <laughs> was the possibility that there would be a 100% tax on our import wines, which is insane. People who did have kind of an inkling or a small understanding of what these taxes meant to their bottom line, they felt that they were just going to purchase domestic wines. And domestic wines are wonderful. You know that, I know that. Everything is like, we've got wonderful wines in the United States, but it trickles down to jobs here, distribution companies, import companies, trucking, restaurants, restaurant employees because it just affected every level of the wine industry and there's so many layers so just because we may be to a general person who knows a little bit about wine taxing more for import bottles it's actually affecting us domestically and so on top of the pandemic all of this was happening in the wine world it's pretty crazy to your very first point it's also cutting against global diversity and broad base of discovery and open education about wine, mm -hmm. just protecting domestic production, I would argue, isn't really the purpose of wine programs in general. Absolutely. Yes. Most American wines are as good as they are because they understand that broad diversity of not just European wines, but global. And I think that it just kind of closes it off. And it's very sneaky because it is so niche, right? That a lot of people will just buy a bottle of wine that costs blank amount of money. It is a very, very big industry. And a lot of consumers will just pass by and not think about it. But when you think about how many people, how many layers of people work within the wine industry, it is a tremendous effect on livelihoods. It's crazy. And so to think about that, in the middle of the pandemic, first trying to be as agile as possible during this time, and then realizing that people are going to naturally stray from the product that you have to be agile with, it's kind of devastating for a lot of people. Oh, for sure. How are you seeing, so you talked about in the context of hard liquor during hard times and recessions, and obviously this being the most intense, I think that our generation surely has seen. How do you see the wine industry preparing, thinking towards the future, or maybe not yet, sort of this massive rise in a zero proof movement that you're seeing, especially with young millennials and Gen Zers are really pushing hard towards not consuming alcohol as much. So we have a zero proof program in our restaurants and I love them. It just kind of completes the program in a way, in my mind. And this is just restaurants and, and we can talk about consumership in general in a second. But for our restaurants, what I see is that if there's the thoughtfulness for the zero proof program, it just showcases that extra care for the entirety of your program. 
it brings in inclusion. I mean, I don't know how many times I, I have a couple of friends who don't drink and I feel like, oh, I shouldn't drink if they're not drinking. But then if they have a menu to look for, there's something that really speaks to them. It allows me to feel comfortable about drinking and ordering something that speaks to me. So it just That's it gives so it, interesting. Yeah. I have I've not heard anyone I've, frame it that way, but I, I think there's something really sort of special to that. Yeah. I mean, when you go to a restaurant, most restaurants, well, I don't say most restaurants, lots of restaurants are family style, shared plates. And like, quite frankly, I miss that. You don't really do that in a pandemic. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit different in the South. I will say that people eat indoors here still as thoughtfully as possible. And you want that camaraderie whenever you dine. That's what it's about. It's literally breaking bread with each other. But if there's someone, I rarely dine with vegans because I love meat. <laughs> cheese. <laughs> and so I love going to a vegan restaurant that has something for me. Maybe it's one or two options. So I think being able to sit down with somebody, whether or not they're teetotalers in their day-to-day -day life or for the dry January or just health conscious, whatever. I think that it's just great that you can show that sense of inclusion in your programming. And it's the same thing. Like if you take care of, if you juice every day, if you get herbs from your local farm, why can't you compile that without a spirit? There's layers and flavors to that as well. So I really, really love that we really take to that and showcase that program within our larger beverage department in the world, like for people who are, I think, drinking less and trying to be more health conscious, I don't think that they're necessarily not drinking. I think that they're being health conscious. So I think being more aware, I see so many questions about clean wine, which is a whole nother ball of wax, but I think that that's great that those questions are being asked. And so again, it just continues the narrative in a way without eliminating the wine industry. Well, I love that you take a very collaborative sort of room for all and, and more is more approach. I think that so often things are sort of seen as zero sum and maybe they don't have to be if you can mm -hmm. reframe. I think yeah. that's super empowering. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, most of the stuff we have, it's not like we're not going to have fresh herbs. It's not like we're not <laughs> going to have a beverage director. It's not like we're not going to have fresh produce. We're not bringing in new products. We're not adding cogs or anything <laughs> to to our bottom line when it comes to having a great zero proof program we're just adding creativity and inclusion so i, I don't see what the problem is well i love that and again it's you know i think you take a very inclusive again more is more approach and i think i don't think that that's the norm per se and i think that that's again a really good lesson and that you could see something either as competitive or complementary right yeah. and that you know also it's going to happen whether you sort of want it to or not the trains left the station the question is how do you make that supportive of your main passion being wine of course uh -huh. getting a little bit deeper into those those folds of the industry not only has this been an unprecedented year with the recession with social progress and just i think our whole world this year i keep saying it's sort of the year of the great reckoning so much has been turned upside down and and frankly no bigger industry right now as well than the wine industry. And I would love again, you to set the stage for what's been happening with the Court of Master Sommeliers, which again, would love a little bit of a primer for those that maybe don't know what it is. You're a remarkable leader within that community. It is one that 
but it's a very small portion of our hospitality population and has stood for something both special, but also things that have been pretty devastating that have only come to light this year. And just would love you to talk a little bit more about what the court is, your role in it, how you've seen this year and helping people better understand. I mean, this has been a real transformation, I think, in a way that it's well long overdue, but remarkable nonetheless. Yes. So the Court of Master Sommeliers is a guild, an examination guild that has four levels of testing. The highest level of achievement is called a Master Sommelier. And there are a little over 200 in the world. There are only 29 women in the Americas. And it was started in the United States, I believe in early 70s, like right at 1970 or so, perhaps late 60s. And then there is a European chapter as well that go hand in hand, but are not necessarily together. So already it's confusing, right? Because you can be called a master sommelier through testing and you can have a European master or an America's master. It is considered one of the highest levels of testing of achievement in the wine world. But I think that's kind of where even people within the wine industry may have a full stop, but it's very specific. The court of master sommeliers is service oriented. So it's really something that was really created for as, as a service guild. So people in restaurants and hospitality and has morphed because of people who people who are interested in it into something that has been associated with almost all levels of wine as the highest level of achievement, which I think has created a lot of derision because of the way that the testing is. It's very oriented to service and and at times oriented to that hyperbolic, super snooty three Michelin star type service that not necessarily people work in or know or live in day to day. It's again, super, super niche. Recently, it's gone through a huge, 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 huge era of change, reflection, much needed reflection and continues to do so. I'd, I'd say that this is still just the beginning of that. It is highly male, is highly, highly white cis male. But I think that's also a reflection of the wine industry in general, frankly, when you're looking at what people look at in the wine industry, winemakers, master sommeliers, import owners, the people who are the face of brands, I think are, are very highly white cis males, not necessarily vineyard workers, servers, bussers, barbacks, interns, etc. And so there has been a huge, oh, just a huge change in the court. There was a very, 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 very important article in the New York Times that came out in, I believe it was late October, first week of November regarding sexual misconduct of master sommeliers that's still currently under investigation. And the court has changed a lot. There was a call for the current board of directors to step down and have a completely new board of directors be elected, as well as the installation of a diversity committee, which I'm part of. So lots of work to do. Right now we are doing listening sessions with the board and different committees. So there's actually a diversity uh, session coming up in the next couple of weeks at the end of February, but we're working to create more transparency in general. I think that's absolutely 
the crucial aspect of understanding what's going on is actually talking and understanding how to translate how people speak to each other. But for instance, one of a small, very, very small thing to show you kind of the work that's going behind it is that in the very near past, service has always been gender oriented, eldest lady first, et cetera. And it's the realization that that's just so antiquated. And that's also making us identify people's gender without having a conversation about it. So things like that are changing, right? So taking gender out of service, understanding the examination process and creating more open lines of communication, creating a very, very clear scholarship program. Um, so not yet fully announced, but for the online programming that we're transferring into one in every 10 students will be a BIPOC scholarship or underrepresented scholarship. We just need to establish those initiatives and they just had never really been thought of. They've never been said no to, but that's also a little bit of gatekeeping. Maybe people were afraid to talk to us because we didn't do that shit in the past. And I think it's just, it's under a microscope because it has been considered one of those high level accreditations that needs to be kind of looked at and evolve with what's necessary in society because it's been living apart from that and not necessarily looking deep within the, the recesses of its membership as well. I don't know, that sounds so bleak, but I still really do love what it has given me in my career, what it has allowed me to. So still believe in it because I'm still part of it. <laughs> And where do you see it moving forward? I mean, what are ways, maybe a little bit of a preview, and we, we spoke beforehand, sort of thinking fast and slow, right? It's a massive, very entrenched, very serious, very complicated and layered set of problems, I would argue, that, you know, really need to be unearthed, redone, rebuilt. And I think there is a lot of pressure on you, the leadership and the court to change things and to create solutions. And we were sort of talking about proper solutions to big problems, need to marinate, need to be thoughtful, need to follow a process. And it seems like it will never be quick enough for what people want as a reaction. But even uh, in the face of that, <laughs> right? I know, and, and it's like, we have to acknowledge that it's not gonna be quick enough because it's a problem that's been prevalent in the entire wine industry. And in this case, I'm talking about sexual misconduct or just misconduct in general. We're dealing with the with booze, right? And we're dealing with people who haven't had that infrastructure. And again, I'm not talking just about the court, I'm talking about the wine industry. Like understanding the infrastructure of how it works is is really difficult. And people within that structure, within the system itself, don't really know how the wine industry works. So I think acknowledging that we understand, and not just we, just everyone should acknowledge and understand that there are people who have been trapped within this system that has seems like it's been forever, right? And I think that we need to understand that that timeline is totally different from the timeline of change. In between those two things is a level of grace that has to be achieved from both parties. And it's really hard and sometimes impossible to achieve. So I think that that's where we are now. It's like we're building a house, but we're still unearthing things. So there is a possibility that the entire foundation will crumble or there is the possibility that something even greater will come of it. And our hope is always the latter and doing those two things simultaneously, building a house and unearthing issues within the foundation is super, super fragile. And I think that that's where the state is presently. It's not that people aren't doing the work for both ends. It's that 
there needs to be a level of understanding that there's still work to be done and that there's space within those two elements where it can be done simultaneously and it involves a lot of people so it's really difficult and i think that the people who are doing the work there is a completely new board for the court of master sommeliers presently they have been there for i don't know maybe 10 weeks if that they just started in the beginning of december december 3rd i believe and I mean, they've been kicking ass, man. They meet every week. Most boards, I know that you're on boards, like most boards meet four times a year, right? For nonprofits. Yeah. So meeting every week shows that level of dedication. And I hope that people understand that. The diversity committee, which is a committee that I'm in, which is an advisory committee that is part of the court meets every week as well. So we understand that there are problems. And I think that our dedication to continuing the work on that regular basis for a nonprofit organization shows the dedication doesn't mean that it's going fast enough but it does show that there's dedication behind it and what do you think is the greatest opportunity right now maybe the greatest hurdle oh man if you get into sort of the weeds of it i will say that the greatest opportunity is the pandemic and the greatest hurdle is the pandemic <laughs> Yeah, so we're moving into an online curriculum, and I think that the court has a really great opportunity to reach the people that have felt alienated by it by being agile and nimble and changing the way that it progresses. So that's what we're working on right now and being what more is accessible. More on that note, what does a more equitable wine industry look like to you? I mean, if you could paint the picture, this is the future of women, but I also look at it as sort of the future of different sides of food in this industry. If you could, you know, paint the painting today from your experience, as I said, I think you just always have such a special optimism and collaborative spirit. If you could paint the picture, what does an equitable wine industry of the future look like to you? Well, 100% needs to have higher representation of underrepresented communities currently. Like there has to be more BIPOC, there has to be more women, there has to be more LGBTQ plus representation. And that starts with accessibility because I can't say that those communities want to be part of the industry. So it starts with the accessibility of saying that this industry exists for you rather than just letting it fall into their laps or they walk around a corner and all of a sudden it's there. So I think that that's what the wine industry needs to start with, that wine is for everyone. It's this beautiful, amazing consumable that can make you extremely happy, extremely quickly, and everyone should drink it. <laughs> and yeah, and what's difficult is that wine itself, it's a luxury item. So it's inherently elitist in a way, especially when you get into that higher echelon thing. It's like the fashion industry. And we have to take a look at that and the good elements of that and the really bad elements of that. And I think that part of the bad elements of that is that it doesn't present itself to people who could be really amazing in the wine industry because of their ethnic background, their gender, their gender identity, definitely their socioeconomic background. Like, you don't know. So we've got to find avenues to say, how do we present this to people who don't even understand if they could be part of the industry and show that we want them in the industry. I think that's where it starts is accessibility. Yeah. And it's so hard. I mean, I think to your point, 
it's so hard to break through that because there is such a long standing paradigm in gatekeeping that's sort of inherent, even a side of wine is a luxury item. I mean, I can tell you again, even from my own experience working with large restaurant groups, I would say, oh, you know, I grew up in California. My parents don't drink. They're not Catholic. They're not cool like yours. <laughs> and they, you know, I didn't grow up in a wine family. Actually, my husband really opened my eyes when we were in college and living in Italy. But I love farming and I love gardening and I love the things that come from our land. And that's obviously one of the most precious products that comes from our land. And obviously growing up in California, it's such a heartland for it. And I remember saying, I'd love to join tastings. I'd love to learn more. Can I, you know, can I be part of this? And there was really a closed door. Like you're not on the soundtrack. You're not on the beverage team. You know, you work for the corporate office. Why do you care? You know, and it was, it's so interesting. It wasn't even no one flinched. You close the door and that's acceptable. So it is so interesting. I find that gatekeeping is so pervasive, frankly, throughout the industry. As you said, there's so many levels and so many people that go into pouring a glass of wine for a guest. And it's interesting to see that it is, it has pervaded from the court really to all levels in such a strange way, frankly. It is strange. It's, it's hard to, I mean, I'll say that like, I kind of live day to day with wondering if I've done enough levels of guilt, being paralyzed by speaking, things like that. And I need to look into that. What have I done to gatekeep? You want to provide accessibility, but did I do it right? By opening one door, have I closed another? And then just constantly like restructuring, rethinking about how to provide mentorship. That's such a huge, huge question. And making sure that there's like not favoritism and and all of these things always kind of course through my mind because it's so new. I think that that's kind of like the most relevant thing is like, man, that sucks that we have not really thought about it. And that's why there's all these questions that keep coming up. These criticisms that keep coming up is because we are late to the party, you know, and it sucks. Because it's become never... so entrenched. It's a, it's yeah. a by, you know, foregone conclusion, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I do think about that because I know I've seen scholarships that are just, if you're on the soundtrack and that's great. I think that that's very, very fine. But I also want to see scholarships that are, if you are on the import track, if you like branding and marketing, if you want to be a winemaker, if you want to be a cider maker, and those are starting to pop up, which I love. I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm just saying that I didn't read a lot of them in the past and currently. So that's really important. There's a lot of criticism as a master sommelier. People are like, why haven't you helped me? Why haven't you mentored me? And I'm like, well, because I'm a restaurant owner. Like, I would love to mentor you if that's what you're interested in, because that's what I can help you with. Like, I can't really tell you how to make champagne, but I can show you how to buy it well, <laughs> drink it and serve it. There is a lot of pressure for people to make it more accessible, but we got to figure out how in the first place and, and how you can help. It interestingly kind of ties and makes me think of what you said originally in the beginning of the podcast, which is a lot of people I think get into wine to have a protectable position. I mean, I hate to say that in oh, a, gosh. I don't mean that in a snarky way. I think it is kind of true. If you're the specialist, you're harder to replace. So maybe there's something there. I think back to if anyone offers a line cook or a cook help, they're taking it. Anyone helping with me's and prep, like you are taking anyone yes, offering. Yes. If you ask the song, hey, would love to help you on the floor, would love to taste with you. Can I join that training? The answer is not yes. It's not an easy yes. And mm -hmm. so there is, 
maybe there's something to that, that there is that mentality of I've worked really hard to secure a very covetable, safe, high value spot on the team. And I, I do have to sort of take a beat before letting someone into that fold because it is protected and covetable in a way that other positions in a restaurant maybe aren't inherently. Yeah. But if you have that mentality with it needs to come the question of, but am I making this accessible to people who don't know it exists? I think a restaurant is a beautiful microcosm to be able to do that because you can constantly look at the people who aren't in that position. You can look at a busser and just be like, I wonder if this person would be interested in this. And so you can start with your community, your direct community, and within that community, that can grow and that grows outside of your doors and that goes outside of your market. I mean, dude, I'm always open to maybe I'm not doing it right. Like, what are the other ways to do it? But I guess I always wonder, do we start from within? Do we start from outside? What are the ways that we can touch as many opportunities as possible for people to possibly be in love with this industry, the way that it has helped and touched me? It's such a yeah. weird thing because you don't think about that. Another aspect of the wine industry is that for all intents and purposes, you're allegedly not supposed to drink until you're 21. How can you even know you start your relationship with food when you breathe? Like you have to have it to survive, right? Like you understand it, but you don't start your relationship with alcohol until later in life. And then you've already thought about what you want to be when you grow up. You always get asked that in kindergarten. <laughs> you've looked at what your parents are or the closest people in your life, how their careers work. And very few times are they in the wine industry or if you see what the wine industry really is, because it's a lot of spreadsheets, quite frankly. And then finally, when you've had all these experiences, like alcohol comes in your life and it's generally not in a manner of like, let's, let's open this wine and understand how it comes from the land. It's usually <laughs> in the form of a keg stand or whatever. So it takes a long time. <laughs> like the relationship changes with alcohol and the industry and wine and people, and you've already grown, you already have an idea of who you are, inherent biases, all of that stuff. How do you make it accessible? It's very complex. I don't know. Maybe I just go round and round in circles a lot, but I just love this industry so much. It's so special. It is diverse, but not, not in the best way possible. Well, and I think you're so true. And I think it's so right that how you get introduced to it at what phase in what stage is the good starting point. And, you know, that's why I always say I love kids of hospitality people because their kids definitely start their relationship earlier. And I just think there's so much more exposure, you know, yeah, they're whether the we admit kids. it or not. <laughs> the I mean, no, they kids. are the coolest. My business partner's kids are the coolest kids. They'll be little entrepreneurs when they're 18 or whatever. But I mean, they're just like, I really love it when the pizza has a crunchier, fluffy crust than a thinner crust. And I'm like, how, how's that even coming out of your mind? Like, that's crazy. I was just happy to go to Chuck E. Cheese. But like understanding that we can make it more thought provoking for people. We can start talking about farms, whether it be food or whether it be vineyards to the next generation quicker than how it was accessible to us. That's a start. But that's also, God, there's also so many other ways. It drives me mad. I know you've been working for independent restaurants throughout this pandemic, but I think about that all the time. When I was in my 20s, I didn't think having a restaurant job was a real job, but that was my job. So how many people who are my age now continue to think that? 
Is that why we're not getting relief? Is that why it's been so difficult to understand how massively important to the economy our industry is? It's because of the doubts that we had when we were early to mid 20s that are still prevalent now. It's so crazy to me. It's such an important, vital industry. I think it's twofold. I think it's to your point, we haven't really been seen as an industry. People call restaurants projects and hobbies and lifestyle and really they're massive businesses with massive employment power that touch every facet of the economy and our culture and our neighborhoods. But by the same token too, I think that, and I think this is true even in the court and even in the wine industry, I think we're really good actors. Our job is to make everyone feel you walk through our doors and everything melts away and you're okay. We're taking care of you. It's very against our DNA to raise a white flag and say, I'm not okay. And so it's sort of against every element of our DNA to say, hey, this pandemic is taking us down and we are not okay and we can't take care of you and we need to be taken care of. We've done a really good job of floating and being the swan right in the water and showing everyone we're fine. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about us. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yes. We'll take Um, care of you. No need to take care of us. Exactly. And I think to, unfortunately, our disservice, especially this year. Yep. You are so right. June, I could talk to you, as you know, for hours upon hours. (laughs) We end every episode with a look ahead. So it's, again, all about the future and especially in 2021, trying to have hope for the next step. So wanted to leave with one final kernel of wisdom from you and your perspective on what's next for the American wine industry and how can we drink better in the future? Oh, what's next for the wine industry in America? I feel like we drink better in the future by knowing where our products come from. So just continuing to understand how to connect with what we put in our bodies is going to be that step to allow you to feel better about yourself. People will thrive on connections and right now more so than ever because we do not have the sense of touch. And so now we can just know and like have our intellects really kind of create that connection to people and to the land and to our products. And I feel like that's really our next step, just being more aware, taking this time to reflect and being more aware of everything, including what we consume. Well, again, June, we know you're running a million miles a minute. You have a restaurant opening. You've been managing pop-ups. You have an amazing hospitality company, plus paving the way for a newly formed Court of Master Psalms. I don't know how you do it all in a day. You are truly superwoman. And again, I thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and taking the time. Oh, thank you so much, Camilla. It was so, so great to catch up with you. 